So y'all Laker fans are trash. Let me start off right there, first and foremost. Whoa. Wow. Let me get it off my chest. That was a lot. Right now. Sorry. That's the way it's got to be, ladies and gentlemen. Whatever. After winning the championship Eight. in the bubble. Congratulations. Yay. LeBron carried Thank you guys. You. What? LeBron had to carry you all the way there. And luckily... <laughs> so we're not gonna do we're not gonna do that we're not we're not gonna talk about this man trying to no we're not doing it it's like warrior fans always act like kd didn't carry y'all <laughs> not even steph was there clay was there they was in the gym the vicinity stop stop <laughs> Without KD. I'm kind of disrespectful. Though. <laughs> really though. Really kind of is. I'm just saying, how are you going to act like Anthony Davis just wasn't wasn't there at all? Exactly. Because this dude's a hater. Because he's a hater. And we we all know LeBron's not built like that anyways. He's not carrying no team on his back. Chill out. Wow. Sounded a little haterish. Chill out. Slander. How about we talk about Dan Green and how you guys are doing the boy? Man, we are not talking about him, okay? Oh, His oh. name shall not be mentioned. Oh, I still want to fight that guy. Championship <laughs> and all. You know what? You know what people have to appreciate, though? Like, I, I went back and watched the game. He hit some threes throughout the game to bring them back. And he does a lot of other stuff throughout the game. People, people act like it's really easy. Stuff. Yeah, but it's, it's, I mean, I know we've seen Steph throw a, throw a behind the back pass out of the Entire bound. playoffs. Danny Green has been hooped. Like, the man, I don't know how he was still starting. <laughs> like, what is happening here? Yo. Put him on the bench. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I I didn't watch him much this year. I remember, all I remember really is first Danny Green. So I know he was knocking down shots there, but. Maybe the Lakers fans have a, have another standard. They have this Kobe like standard for everybody. So, like, I'm a big basketball fan, big basketball fan. So I've seen Danny Green, Spurs, and Raptors, and now Lakers. He is definitely decreasing in his performance for sure. And we're talking about defense. Like, and we're talking about defense too. Danny Green. His defense wasn't no, even that good. I think defense is a. Really? You think the defense wasn't that good? It was not that good. Like Danny Green, first of all, when they put once they put none in, none was running circles around that man. That's none though. Granted none he's is... a lot granted he's a lot younger, but like Danny Green was looking whooped. Gassed. Like, help him. Please. So it was enough to send his fiance death threats? That's just those are the the bandwagon mm. fans doing way too much. Mm. I'm not gonna send a death threat, but he might get hit. If I see him in public, but hey, I'm not gonna send a death threat. Bro, we talking about too much. with my car. Bro, we talking about a no, three one lead. Fist, fist, a three fist one lead. You guys were like, already he did up. good. Like, like, well, no, it was a three zero lead. All is three well that ends well. No, it was not. Wasn't? No, it wasn't. A no, it went two one. Get out of here. See, you know what you're talking about, two. kid. Bro, yeah. either way, it wasn't that serious, bro. It was not that serious. Bro, you're in the NBA. That is a wide open shot from the top of the key. There is no reason he should have missed that. Bro, no reason. They won the next game and they close it out. It doesn't matter. I feel like looking at this play, like he, he could have taken like a half second or another second to like gather himself because yeah. he caught the pass at it. It was a it was a good look for the pass, but it wasn't a great pass. Oh yeah, no, the pass wasn't great, but at at the same time, if they're bringing you here because you're supposed to be a three-point shooter, especially yeah. an open shot, you're supposed to be a knockdown shooter, there's no reason he should have missed that. Yeah, but also keep in mind, it's like almost like Duncan Robinson, right? Duncan Robinson has value even if he's off and he's missing all his shots. Mm -hmm. Because he's a threat, he forces the defense to pay attention to him, and that opens up the floor. So it's like... Do you want Danny Green, who's a threat, or do you want Alex Caruso, who they're like, you know what? I'll let you try to beat us. No, nah, but if you look at the entire playoffs, or at least the finals, like, he was sucking that bad that they were low-key leaving him open. Like, he wasn't he wasn't that threat factor anymore. That's why I was irritated with him. 
So we're just going to ignore the second attempt. He could have made, but Morris threw it away. We're going to ignore that. That, that was yeah, trash, that, too. That, Don't act like you didn't see my tweets, yes. man. I was on both of their heads. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to know who he was throwing it to. Like, what happened? We had Yo. time to set, get a decent play. LeBron was open. And LeBron was open. LeBron, LeBron like was open. He was open. On the wing. He, just he threw was it out hot. Of bounds. He was carrying him. Like, just, you just threw it out of bounds. Like, I was like, what is happening? Like, you got one job. Get the ball to the man. That's your job. AD is not the man. Not yet, anyways. LeBron is the man. Get him the ball. You got one job. Hey, you got you there. You might as well let him finish, you know? But y'all wanted him to go against five Miami Heat players, go up and lay it off the backboard. I would have shot it. Y'all are nuts. That's a, and back to Danny Green. That's how bad Danny Green was playing. If Danny Green was the person that was open, I'm shooting the ball. I'm not passing it to you, son. <laughs> like it's not happening. Whatever. If I miss, I'm a, we took the L, but we ain't gonna take the L riding on you. Heck no. Bruh. Hold on. But you gotta respect though LeBron's statement he said after the game he said, I am who I am. I play the game the way I play the game. I'm not changing it. For somebody else. And I think that that's significant because he's in his own greatness rating scale. That's why I think that he is in that conversation of greatest of all time. Where you have these pillars. And really to me it's like only really like maybe three or four guys. It's like Jordan, LeBron, Kareem, Russell. They you don't disrespect the bean? Oh, oh my god. I'm about to unplug my headphones. Like, I'm done. But hey, yo, let's, let's, let's start the show, bro. Let's start the show. It's your girl, Vanessa Denae. And it's your boy, Swoosh Knight. And you're tuning into Love, Love Yours, Yours, the podcast. Cousins. Hello, hello. Yo, it's your boy, Swoosh Knight, in the building. It's your girl, Vanessa Denae. And we have two impeccable guests here with us. So first up, you know, we got the we got the boy, Ross Nyanga, South Bay runaway. Decided to head up to, to Oakland to do things in the town. So, you know, we had to let him go. So he is a consultant right now. You know, he got his degree in mental health along with us. He's currently life coaching and working on a book on black minds and the school system. Yo, Ross. Hey, hey. It's good to be here. It's good to be here. Yes, sir. And we got my boy, Michael Clark, fellow Santa Clara Bronco in the mix. Barrier transplant from B More. Big trust. Say what's up, Mike. This is so trust. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For sure. He's a he's a therapist out here in the in schools out here in the in the Bay Area. So you know. Welcome everyone. This is Love Yours, the podcast, the podcast that promotes Black mental health, Black mental wealth, and Black mental stability. And they will forever be at a reach until you. Love yours. Bam, 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 bam. <laughs> <laughs> so today we, we are hopping in the mix to discuss black education and the system. So a lot of kids are going back right now amidst the pandemic. While a lot of schools are still chugging along with distance learning, we're still trying to figure out kind of where the black community is at. Because... There's still issues that are arising out there. Two in particular at the top of my head is Isaiah Elliott, 12-year-old who got in trouble for flashing one of his toy guns while during a distance learning class. And 15-year-old Grace, who violated her probation due to failure to submit schoolwork, mostly because she was having issues with distance learning. As we know, the school system has not been meant for us and has not worked too well for us 
and quite often characterizes us as aggressive, unmotivated, having bad attitude, or just being difficult overall. And as a result, we kind of fall through the cracks. So to start us off, you know, as a kid, do you guys feel like it was communicated to you that the school overall just wasn't for you? Or is that something you guys had to learn over time? I mean, I'd say my experience, it was pretty much like my grandmother was an educator. So that was pretty much the path. It wasn't really the op- like options to do something else <laughs> did not exist. Yep. Um, so it was just kind of like, I'm good. It was just kind of like, be a good student, keep these grades up. Like that's the most important thing. And that's kind of like how I had approached it for a long time, probably until I got to like college. Mm. And then my views started to kind of change on not so much whether it was for me, but how it looked, if it fit, like it, it could still exist for me, but maybe with some changes, alterations. Yeah. I would say that was, that's, that was my experience through kind of like through college. Mm. Uh, I realized school wasn't for me by the time I hit junior high. In elementary school, I was a pretty high-performing academic student, and there was a lot that took place in transitioning, uh, moving to a new neighborhood, new city. Well, not new city, but I went from the west side of San Jose to the east side, heading into the fifth grade. And a lot of stuff that was happening in the school really impacted my ability to engage academically. And I want to say my GPA dropped from about, I want to say it was like a 4.2 to about a 2.3 by the time I left in the eighth grade. Mm. And there wasn't a single word, not a concerned anyone. It was just not even on the radar. And I think midway through junior high, I realized, oh, this place really doesn't care. There's very little actual investment in me as a a person or my performance or anything. You know, so I think that was like the beginning of, okay, this school thing isn't really about me. This is about me just moving on through. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'll say that in my household, well, I've said this before on the show, my grandparents were both born in Alabama, as well as my mother. So witnessing racism like at a high alarming rate was not unknown to them. So I was brought straight up like, these people are not on your side. They are not here to help you do better. Basically, you have to get it on your own and you have to work 10 times harder than everybody else. So that's the mindset that I have. I was a bit of a like an overachiever, was really committed as far as like school and making sure my academics and like my grades and everything was up. However, I think it didn't really dawn on me, dawn on me. Similar to what Ross was saying, I switched the area where I went to school. And it's odd because I went to an elementary school at um It was more minorities, not necessarily black, but Hispanic. But there were people there that cared. Like, I was very fortunate to have teachers that were on it. My fourth grade teacher, may she rest in peace, did not play. Would call if you didn't write your reading log correctly. Like, was on it. So I had teachers like that that were very invested. And then I moved to a different side of San Jose and went to Mediate. And it wasn't so, you know, black or brown there. And I had a few teachers that paid close attention. But other than that, it was just like nothing was expected of me. Mm. So it was just like, okay, you got a you got a cool grade type of thing. Other than that, it's just like, okay, like whatever. So then I think that's when it really dawned on me. Like, okay, these people really don't give a damn. And it's it is up to me. Yeah. That makes sense. For the most part, yeah, I think it's definitely a a big piece of teacher care and people actually putting in effort and noticing when you're not doing well. I mean, for me, yeah, I think a lot like you guys, like I had a lengthy family history of teachers 
and very early on it was the the message was you go you go in don't pull no shit if i hear even a whiff of you acting out that ass is mine like i was i was going to get an ass whooping not a matter if when so i knew and my dad would do these like pop up like let me talk to your teacher real quick it could be full on like i know he has work today I know what time he gets off. There's no way he's going to make it to my teacher in time. And then he would just be there. And I'm like, oh, shit. That ass whooping is coming. That ain't nothing. My mom worked at the school. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. My mom and my auntie worked at the school. Yeah. So. When, you're, when your caregivers work at school and you fuck up, that's like, okay, like, let me take your ass into this bathroom real quick. And then you can go back to math. Yeah. yeah, no. Never test that water. I believed her when she she made the threat. So I was like, oh yeah, you about it. I'm not. I'm not gonna attempt to see if she's not. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I think that that kind of points to the significance of the community of the school that you're in, in terms of the degree of its investment in you as an individual. And I, I really see a lot of the school environments kind of present this situation where you're lucky if you get one mm, or two mm-hmm. teachers throughout an entire period of schooling that are invested in you. Because it's always surprising when everyone can point out the one or like that second one that was actually impactful. But it's like, well, you have about five or six teachers each semester you know, or each school year, you know, and you go through the years and it's like, yeah, there was that one that looked in on me or held me accountable or, you know, made sure I was getting the resources that I needed, you know, and it's like, dang, one, huh? You know, it really points to the, Mm -hmm. to the environment. That's for sure. So I think with with that, my bubble kind of bursts when I saw like other kids that looked like me. I mean... They were their parents had like, you know, more flexible rules so that they could speak up and talk back. But the seems like the, the the way that they were handled was mostly just like, you know, he's a bad kid, you know, he's doing this or he doesn't want to stand or, or he doesn't want this for him. And so you could definitely see kind of where the teacher kind of pulls that attention away from him because he's not following through or she's not following through with how they want them to behave. So yeah, each of you have, have worked pretty closely with the school system. I think to the great extent, we know it's bad, but how, how bad do you guys feel like the education system is right now, at least for African-Americans? Being that I work on a campus at a middle school, actually, I personally think that it's gotten a hundred times worse. A lot of the kids that are in my program they wouldn't they're not academically where they should be for one like i help them with their home and projects and stuff that they have and i'm just looking at their work like yo this is stuff that i did when i was in like fourth grade third grade and these are seventh eighth graders some of the sixth graders and they straight up let these fail like one of my kids his mom called me saying he has a 0.7 GPA. Shit. Exactly. And I'm like, how is that even possible? Right. So, and there's, I just can't see myself being a teacher or someone like a principal or guidance counselor or anything like that, knowing that these kids are getting these type of grades and just letting it slide. Because at that point, like this is, that was his accumulative GPA. Like he was an eighth grader. So out of the three years that he went to that school, like his parents at any other time, just, okay, January before he's supposed to graduate, hey, your kid has a 0.7 GPA and he's definitely not walking the stage. Yeah. If there's, I don't know what it is. Any type of, like, earlier intervention. Yeah. Like, cause that, like, 0.7 in eighth grade means, like, there were, there were like, maybe two years where you, you didn't do, like, you didn't get any Literally. Grade. I'm like, bro, like, did you go to class? Like, how is that possible? 
And he's just like, nah, I went to class. My my teacher said I was fine. I'm like, that's just, it's just insane to me. I mean, I I think what's what's tough is is that we like, and I, I've so so to add some context to my work, um, organizing for maybe the past seven years, I had an organization called um, Alliance for Black and Brown Advocacy. One of the programs that we had was um, the Alliance for Black and Brown Teachers to support Black and Brown teacher candidates throughout their graduate program to ensure that they graduated and had social, emotional, and content support, mm. along with researching schools that had the best systems for supporting Black and Brown educators to ensure that they actually stayed in the field. And we set up early interviews so that they could be placed at the best school so that they can actually have longevity in the school. And our outlook was to be able to ensure that black and brown educators can be so that you can have more individuals who would be personally invested in the individual lives of black and brown students. With that said, I think what's tough is that we are given our oppressors perspective of the plantation. We are given our oppressors perspective of the school system. You had a kind of a white male dominated uh, or even white female dominated narrative about what school is doing, what it's for, um, how it's supposed to help. And there's absolutely no data that shows that it's actually accomplishing these that it uh, swears by. And what's tough is that most of our community enters into these school systems with this kind of illusion of what it is and we keep becoming disappointed and frustrated and upset at the reality that we find ourselves in. With that said, I have over the past four years doing mental health work and partnering with South Bay organizations that have advocated for families and students in South Bay schools. I have seen horrors, I would say, that's probably the best way to put it, from a teacher at a high school who brought a noose, a, a literal noose rope noose mm. to school and threatened a black student, black high school student. We've had a nine-year-old boy hogtied by the principal of a school. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what hog tying is, you know, tying your hands and your feet together. You've had, let me see, countless cases of black students being called the N-word with no repercussion to the students, black students who have been jumped and beat up by other students while being called the N-word. We've had teachers slapping students. Uh, we've had, I mean, I can, I can literally go on and on of the cases that have come to our table. I think the most infamous was the, and forgive my language, uh, the nigger kill list, which was the actual name of it. It was a blog started by students at a high school in the South Bay. It it got a little bit of press. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, and hearing about how the school knew about it in October of the school year, didn't tell the parents until April. Oh, shit. And the more and more that I've been in those spaces, and that's not even counting doing the mental health work of supporting Black students with quote-unquote behavioral challenges who are literally being harassed, being being taught by people with an overwhelming amount of implicit bias and prejudice against them that leads to confrontation, accelerated conflicts, a lack of support, being completely ignored in classrooms, falling behind, and the reinforcement by the administration of these teachers, and then watching parents and caregivers kind of floundering, like, how do I help my child? All the while, the majority of these same instructors and administrators smiling and saying how much they love the student, but their actions show the exact contrary. And I think one of the things that I... I, personally believe needs to happen is that more of these stories not only come to light 
but I think in similar fashion to the way our political system has been exposed in this past administration, that our school systems need to be exposed to a extreme degree so that there's no more mystification around the potential of what this institution is going to do or has been doing or is set up to do. And I think it's only when we begin to see it clearly that we can navigate it accordingly. Because as long as we continue to believe and to support smiling faces um, and ignore the actual data of what these smiling faces are actually producing, mm-hmm. I think we're going to kind of find ourselves in this cycle and what I call the gauntlet of the school system that our children find themselves in over and over. You know, we have a school to prison pipeline for a reason. And yet that data has not changed. <laughs> Even becoming aware of it for the past maybe 10 to 15 years of becoming really popularized. And yet nothing has changed. That data around third and fourth grade reading levels and duration outcomes has stayed the same. Dropout rates and lack of graduation and joblessness, poverty, it has not changed. And so I think, you know, the question that I have to kind of ask myself in the mirror and encourage the community to ask themselves is when do we accept the reality that we're in? When do we take on the challenge and say, if this isn't working, who do I have to become so that I can achieve what I'm passionate and dedicated to ensuring uh, comes about for my community? I mean, I was just kind of thinking about my experience, like working in the in the schools as well, and specifically around like there's this this like the um, that you know teachers and administrators can display you know towards you know certain kids, and it's usually the kids that like they they label as having behavior issues they aren't you know they aren't like these compliant kids that don't disrupt things and they just want with those kids i've I've witnessed kind of like i need to figure out a way to get this kid out of the classroom or this kid like hearing things like they can't be here Mm -hmm. or i can't teach with the kid with this kid here and then, like, if they can find a way, if the kid happens to stay in class, but they found a way for the kid to occupy and not disruptive, but the kid's not learning anything, not engaging in the curriculum or anything, they're, like, fine with that. Um, meanwhile, the kid isn't learning anything. The kid isn't developing. And it just, I'm, I just think about, like, okay, you know, this kid is already going to be at least a year behind. And I'm sure it's just going to be replicated in subsequent grades. And it's just, that's just how it, that's just how the tra- trajectory, you know, can be for kids that are labeled that way. Right. I think especially like, even with, because I'm I'm a therapist out in the community and, and there's been strict lines about not crossing, not asking about school, not trying to, you know, get more information about it. But it's been something where I do try because I do find that a rich experience in some of my black kids that I do go and I try to ask the school about how they've been and, and what they kind of present. They kind of give me a full rap sheet of like, oh, this has been going on for a long time. Kind of signaling, kind of like mm-hmm. what Ross said, like instead of you saying, hey, you know, this kid needs help, let me take that initiative to, like, you know, refer him to services or talk to the parents about, like, hey, he needs something. It's just, hey, it's been like this for a long time. And that's, that's a, if not, it wasn't, like, a red flag. Right. Yeah. And it's like, you know, this is your job, right? Yeah. I think just in the conversations that I've had with, like, a lot of teachers at the school that I'm at, I personally feel like the quality of teachers is not the same as when I was in school. Like I said, I was fortunate to have a few teachers sprinkled in elementary school that like really, really cared. 
So I know it's very possible for these teachers to be involved. But then I feel like now we have so many teachers that are kind of just there. And it's like a whatever to them. And then, you know, kids are in situations where it's like they're have to work all day and they don't have the time during the day to speak to these teachers. So I'll be the one that will go and talk to the teachers and you can just tell that they just, there's a disconnect, you know, it's just like, I may have one or once or twice, but this kid is not doing what I want them to do. So once they put that label on your child, that's it. And there's, I think there's a twofold aspect, especially when it comes to parent engagement, uh, which is kind of often a popular term, but generally holds the least amount of investment in terms of finances and resources to ensure. But I think there's an aspect to where when the content that their children is learning has nothing to do, you know, we often uh, acknowledge it has nothing to do with the children's experience, mm -hmm. but we also have to recognize what it is that very little, if anything, to do with the parent's experience. And so then you have to ask yourself, like, how does a parent support their student to learn content that is so foreign to their experience, they're almost disabled from being able to support that student. And so then by the time that you have that parent trying to communicate to a teacher about what needs to be done, it's it's such a foreign type of action. I mean, not to even, you know, point to what the parents' experience may have been like within schools and if they're even comfortable engaging with an instructor in that type of environment. And, you know, if they potentially have trauma or any type of adverse experience in that environment to where they go to a teacher. Mm -hmm. But it's to say when the content itself has very little to do with them, it's like, well, then how do you ask a teacher for support with supporting your child with learning about something that's irrelevant. Right. And I think there's been, I think the fact that, you know, parents' lack of engagement within the Black community or working with Black students, it has been kind of a, a would you say, like, dagger that some teachers use and saying, like, well, you know, what's he doing at home? Lack of boundaries. I mean, I definitely feel like the whole, like, educational experience, like, it has to be, like, 50-50. Like, parents have to work yeah. on their end. Teacher has to work on their end. It can't be all on teacher's fault, and it can't be all on parents. It's definitely a partnership. But, you know, like Ross is saying, if a parent does, doesn't know anything about the subject, then, yeah, the, the teacher might have to put in a little extra effort on their end. So it might not be 50-50. It might be 75-25. But I feel like a lot of teachers don't want to do that either. They don't even, they don't want to do the 50-50, so they damn sure don't want to do the 75-25. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then if you think about the actual structure of schools in terms of the resources provided, the overpopulation within classroom sizes, the lack of support administrationally, and then you look at testing, and you look at the lack of freedom within the curriculum, teachers to actually institute something that they know might be more relevant. It's, you know, you, you just, you have just so many hurdles. Mm. It's even when you have well-intending teachers, it's like their ability to operate in such a strict system of school that is constantly under the threat of being even more defunded. And so this overemphasis on testing and grades and scorings just to stay open it's like well how do you ever shift to the individual needs of each student and how to structure their educational experience in order to empower them as they experience their lives you know it just it just never really gets there right and i mean i can see i, I can see the teachers focus if you're like i can see how a teacher can be like all right, like this kid is disruptive or these kids are disruptive and I need to teach this lesson to get through this curriculum. I need to make sure that they can perform well on these on these exams when it's like, you know, you've tied my livelihood to mm -hmm. the performance. And that's like, that's a, that's a, you know, foundational need, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, that's a foundational need of like, of survival is like, am I going to keep right. this job or not? So if you 
be very easy to the people that aren't. You're not contributing to me achieving this goal. So I, I'm not going to pay any attention to you, or I'm going to try to make sure that you're out of my way so that I can actually achieve this goal. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring up performance because uh, definitely when I was looking, doing the research for this, it was noticed that a lot of African-American students had the most difficulty when things shifted from more of a, a communal approach to teaching rather than switching to a like more competitive curriculum. I mean... Like I said, there's there's so many layers of it. And, and one of the programs that I um, developed is called the Community Commitment to Change program. And it's a parent and family empowerment program that's meant to provide the education for the community to be able to support itself. And the outlook is that it can support itself independently of the system. And one of the sessions is around the school system and a foundational statement and challenge that is issued to the parents and sometimes grandparents is you are 100% responsible for the outcome of your child, not the school. Mm -hmm. And that is to shift the focus in terms of how we structure our lives in order to ensure that our children have the life experience that we desire for them in acknowledgement of our connection to their success. And the reason why we have to do that is to break through this illusion of the investment of the school system in in black children's lives. Mm -hmm. And when parents can begin to shift this school system is likely going to fail my child to some varying degree, somewhere between a school to prison pipeline or to whatever end. Mm-hmm. I can't let. Them. So what do I need to do to ensure that my child doesn't fail? And in that course, we talk about understanding the grading system, understanding testing, parent rights and tools for engaging with teachers and the system itself in order to ensure that your child gets the education that they need. Mm -hmm. Because in part, like, that is granted to them. In a sense, the school is getting money for them being in the seats. So who's to say that they don't deserve to get the education? Because it's one thing to be black, but then black and then also have special needs is a whole, like, I mean, that they... They kind of just, man, don't know what to do with them. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at even the development of special education in the American school system and that evolving out of the desegregation period and the influx of black students into predominantly white space schools with overwhelmingly white instructors and administrations and special education being used as a space to send black students and excuse not providing the education that they need. Mm-hmm. And so you look at that entire, and I know I'm talking loud here, I'll try to give some space to uh, somebody else to chime in. Oh no, don't worry about it. But I, I have a I have a chapter in my book called uh, The Teacher is God. And it talks about the disproportionate amount of power given to teachers. And I open the chapter with a story about a client that I had who was dealing with behavioral challenges within the school setting. And when I finally, finally got okay to be able to sit in the class to really see for myself what was going on so I could understand the context of what they were saying about this student, I was absolutely shocked and in horror of what I was watching. And this was a, this was a second grade class in this elementary school. And um, literally, I walk into this classroom And it wasn't even a large classroom, student size. It was maybe 15, 17 students. And I I walk in and immediately I see my client. She's seated right next to the door. And then I look through the rest of the class and all the other students are seated in the opposite corner closest to the teacher's desk. And so you can imagine a classroom size that could probably fit 
mid-20s students, and there's enough chairs for maybe 25 to 30 students. But there's only about 15 to 17 students actually filling it. And they're mm-hmm. all bunched next to this teacher in this corner by her desk. And they're getting attention, they're getting instruction, and they're being educated. And then my client is seated in the furthest seat, not just from the teacher, but from her peers. And she's sitting there by herself. And when I sit there and I look at her body language, staring down at the floor, shoulders slouched over, and she is literally not only not giving eye contact to the teacher or her peers, but is not receiving it back. She's not being looked at. The teacher never walks over to give her instruction to follow up on if she's doing the work, does not engage with her at all for the first maybe 15 to 20 minutes that I'm in this class setting. And then as she transitions, only communicates to my client to semi-scold her for what she might do or is assuming that she's going to do in this new class setting that is supposed to be more interactive. Mm. Then she transitions to probably the most emotionally gut-wrenching moment, which was when she goes into story time. And there's these lines on the floor. There's five lines for the students to sit in. And she's seated at the front of the classroom. And the students is maybe four to five students in each row. And there's one row, the very last line is completely empty. And at the end of that line, stretching to the back of the classroom, there is a box created using tape. And this box is for my client to sit in. And the teacher reminds her explicitly You are not allowed to sit with the rest of the students because you're too disruptive. So go to your assigned box. And my client, in embarrassment and shame to be put in this box, turns around and slowly walks to it and sits in it like her imaginary cage and begins to stare back down at the floor. And I look at the school psychologist who was mandated to chaperone me in the class. And I said, is this normal? And she says, I don't know. I said, this is problematic. She says, I know. When I talked to the teacher after that class, I can tell you without hesitation the entire time she smiled at me and told me how much she loved and cared for my client. After putting her in a box. After the entire experience that had been normalized throughout the school year. And then she begins to tell me every single wrong, negative aspect about my client's behavior, academic performance, abilities, scoring, testing. And I sit there and I'm like, your face says you love her. Your actions and your words say you despise her. Now, I can go into where the story continues. The teacher actually ends up admitting that there was a degree of animosity between her and my client. They had actually had a confrontation where she reported that my client had kicked her and had headbutted her. The school administration affirmed that this took place. I asked them if they ever talked to my client to ask if the teacher's story was true. They said no. They never talk to her because she's too difficult to talk to. I said, so then how do you know that this actually took place in the way that it's being reported? There was no response. Then I started looking back through my notes at my client's behavior. And I realized my client is not confrontational. She's passive 
and she's somebody who runs away when she feels triggered or alarmed. So how is it that my client not only kicked, but headbutted a woman who's twice her size? And I started thinking, I was like, well, unless my client has some sort of dormant kung fu abilities to jump up and get to this teacher's head height, this implies that the teacher came down and was moving into my client's space. And I started thinking to myself, wow, you have a teacher, a vice principal, the principal, school psychologist, head of special education, and the admin who does testing, all affirming of how terrible this student is and why they need to be moved and put into special education. And not a single one is talking about what they could do better with their master's degrees in education, what they need to do to improve, what resources that they can provide, not a single thing. And for me, it was, imagine if I'm not there to advocate for this little girl. She's going through this at second grade. What happens by the time that she's in third grade and fourth grade? And it's something that I, I've always held on to is that we must be conscious of when we speak to students about giving effort and trying and attempting to achieve. And we have to make sure that we're not coming with the misconception that they haven't already tried. And that so often these students have tried for years, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, for years and have received nothing but adversity, conflict, targeting, and essentially racism. And then now that they've sometimes given up, we want to come with the message, hey, let me help you try harder. And how oftentimes that energy could be so misplaced, even by those of us who are well-intended. I think the thing that stood out to me like the placement in the room, the the nonverbals and indirect like behavior towards the student was automatically like like she's ostracized and you don't belong here. And kids internalize mm-hmm. that stuff. It's also like you don't the only time you exist is when you're disruptive because that's the only time that I actually respond to you. And it just reminded me of the multiple like multiple experiences that I've that I've witnessed the three years that I worked in elementary school of just like the things that are like some things that yeah they're communicated explicitly and verbally to kids but then there are a lot of things that are communicated indirectly and non-verbally and kids are always they're hypervigilant to non-verbals you know so they observe these things and then it becomes this interjection where like it becomes a part of them and a part of what they think about themselves and then they behave that way or you know they perform that way and they're often not people in the school that are either in the position to observe those things or willing to intervene in those things um, when they witness them Mm -hmm. and there's a level of kind of camaraderie and being a teacher of like this it seems like this shared experience of having some disruptive kids and griping about disruptive kids and griping about their families and essentially just talking shit about the kids and their families and and disparaging kind of how they engage with a system that either doesn't engage with them or neg- like negatively engages mm-hmm. with them. And like Ross said, never looking at themselves like, what am I doing or what am I not doing to 
that that's led to this outcome? Mm-hmm. How am I contributing to this situation? Mm-hmm. That was a big contention that I had my last year at the school that I worked at, the elementary school that I worked at, was that I, for whatever reason, it became it was my mission that year, the 2019-2020 year, to point out to the teachers of, like, and asking them, okay, yeah, you're saying this kid behaves this way or reacted this way. At the same time, what, what and inter, I mean, interaction is bi-directional. Like, any interaction, like, both people are contributing to the interaction. So, like, what are you, like, was there something that you might have done or said that exacerbated the situation? or led to a reaction that would not have happened if you didn't contribute that part to the interaction. Mm-hmm. And they weren't trying to hear that whatsoever. And it, it just became a fight. Like it's just a, it just became a year long fight of this, the lack of accountability and the lack of ability to recognize that they're not just showing up to this classroom and you know, like, Neutral. Then you're not showing up. To, you're not showing up to this classroom. Neutral. Like you're bringing yourself to this classroom mm-hmm. and all that, all that you're composed of. And there's no way that you're not bringing implicit bias to the classroom. Exactly. To Mike's point, I mean, when we talk about like object relations, in a sense, yeah, these teachers are kind of an as Ross put it in the title of his story, like teachers are God because you're coming in to mold minds. You're within a system that's, you know, no matter what is kind of on their side. And so if a kid steps out of line and, or some things don't line up as they should, they're not going to think that, Oh, the system's a problem. I'm the problem. And then that's where we begin to label. And that's where we begin to kind of just kind of, fulfill our prophecy, right? Fulfill what it was always meant to be. If you look into the history of not just the school system, but the introduction of testing and grading, many of those initial testing rudiments were actually created through the American Eugenics Society. And if you're familiar with the Eugenics Society, it was an organization that was founded by American elites, if not the 1%, the top 2%. These were people who were connected to billion-dollar foundations, to institutions and corporations that held a lot of power in the United States. And they were intentionally setting out to ensure that the class of races maintained a certain hierarchical order and they utilized testing to justify why they would distribute funding, why they could institute different programs, and essentially continue to profit from the oppression of black and brown bodies. And so within testing itself, it's literally a tool of white supremacy. It's literally a tool of oppression that was inherently created to ensure that they can maintain these outcomes for communities. And so when we start looking into the content that is created of what our students are learning, we're looking into the curriculums that are being brought in. When we look at to even the system of how we educate, it has nothing to do with our children. It has nothing to do with the black community. It has nothing to do with how we inherently understand how learning takes place and what is best for our children. And I'll give you a small example. There's a a book called Yurugu, Y-U-R-U-G-U. And this researcher looked into the cultural norms and values of Western European communities versus African indigenous cultural norms and values. And one of the values that she points out is individualism and the need to isolate and separate everything. And that means not just communities, 
but even down to food, eating on a separate plate versus a shared bowl, or uh, even separating the food on the plate. There was this normalcy in European culture of separation, and that also fed into its schooling practice. And what we have today is the separating of subjects, the separating of ideas. You separate math from literature, from history, from any type of culture, cultural studies, science, all of it is separated. But when you look into indigenous cultural norms, all those things are actually integrated. That you don't separate your spirituality from your mathematics, from your science, from your agriculture, from your history, from your understandings of relationship. It's, it was all integrated. And so you actually have our communities coming into a space that the actual structural setup is mm-hmm. almost the antithesis of what our community naturally is geared towards. And so a lot of times it doesn't make sense on a deep inherent level that it doesn't make sense to learn information that has nothing to do with me. It doesn't make sense to learn from somebody who I'm not even sure likes me. It doesn't make sense to be graded based around this idea unconsciously that whatever the teacher has given me is perfect and I should be able to execute it, perform it, produce it to its fullest extent. And any inability to Mm -hmm. do so is inherently my fault. And that fault is then now assessed by this teacher to then give me a grade. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. And so when we, when we look at the actual environment at its foundational core, it's already set up in an adversarial context for our children and families to enter into. And so when we begin to understand the foundation of things, it begins to help us to see through the well-intending aspects of what we're trying to accomplish. And instead of being shocked that it's not happening, we actually are able to take a look at it and be like, yeah, it actually makes a lot of sense that it's not happening. It makes sense that schools that are predominantly taught by white people and white women are struggling with connecting to a community that they not only are not a part of, but have very little investment in. They don't Mm -hmm. live within. They haven't studied their cultural history and needs. They aren't a part of creating those changes. It actually makes sense that they would come in with prejudices and stereotypes based around the limited exposure they've had based around media perceptions of them. It makes sense that this is now reflected in the grades and the outcomes of their ability to perform at their idea of how they should perform, right? And so it, instead of us going like, wow, I, don't, I can't believe this is happening. How can we stop this? It, we start actually looking ahead and being like, yeah, this is going to happen. This is actually uh, almost unavoidable. And so if that's the case, then what do we do as people who are invested in these children's outcomes and are invested in the long-term outlook of our communities of children who are not receiving education to equip them to succeed in a world that is already set up Mm -hmm. to undermine them and to oppress them and keep them in poverty? And that looks like this will be a great place to stop for this episode. Of course, you guys know that this is Love Yours, the podcast, the podcast that promotes black mental health, black mental wealth, and black mental stability. And they will forever be out of reach until you love yours. You know, it's your boy, Swoosh Knight. Find me on the IG, Swoosh underscore K-N-I-G-H-T. Holla at your boy. My lovely co-host, Vanessa Denae. Find her at Denae underscore Vanessa. D-A-N-E-E underscore V-A-H-N-E-S-S-A. Big ups to our guest, Michael Clark, school therapist in the East Bay. And, of course, our boy Ross. Catch him at the new Yonga, T-H-E-N-E-W-Y-A-N-G-A.
the boy. And of course, you know, come find us. I love yours, the podcast. Love yours underscore podcast on IG. And love yours underscore pod on Twitter. This episode you can find, of course, at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher. And hopefully we know we work our way up to Spotify and branch out wherever podcasts are available. And you guys know what to do already. Like, comment, subscribe, rate, and review. You know, we love the feedback. We love getting engaged with you guys. So definitely feel free to reach out if you're interested and join us on this podcast, whether it's a certain topic or a certain message you want to deliver, hit us up. Always looking for new guests, new voices, new stories to share. So feel free. Until then, tune in next time for the second part of this episode as we drop some more gems, promote some more support, and talk about different ways that we can help our black community. Until then, see you next time. Love yours, the podcast. The podcast.